This is the Trip Doctor Podcast. I'm Arizona State University tourism professor Evan Jordan. If you're interested in learning more about being an intelligent traveler, head over to the website at gotripdoctor.com where you can find travel planning resources, a blog about all things travel, and a traveler personality quiz. Many travelers go on their vacations with little thought about what they are or are not able to do during their trip. For people with disabilities, it isn't that simple. From people with mobility disabilities, to those with hearing or vision disabilities, to those with visible or invisible mental disabilities, it often takes an enormous amount of effort to plan and execute a successful vacation. My guest today is Dr. Simon Darcy, a professor at University Technology, Sydney. He's been doing research for the last 20 plus years on travel with disabilities and is working towards solutions to reduce effort it takes for people with disabilities to travel. Dr. Darcy has found that various areas in the travel process require different levels of effort for those with different disabilities, but the industry as a whole is slowly getting better at addressing the needs of travelers with disabilities. We, we've come a, you know, a hell of a long way in that time in many respects. Uh, but the, the area I'd say has become harder um, harder and harder, and certainly um, uh, the U.S. had led the way with the something like the Air Carriers Act uh, has been with um, the airlines and flying with a disability, whether that be um, people with vision, uh, those with autism with behavioural issues, and certainly um, with the treatment of people with mobility disabilities that have got... Um, uh, that have got, you know, mobility devices. So, um, you know, it, it's uh, it, it's patchy, and um, of course, if you can't take an airplane with confidence, then uh, you know your uh, geographic reach is going to be reasonably um, constrained. So, Simon, I'm hoping that you can tell me a little bit about yourself as a traveler and maybe how that has informed uh, the research that you have done. Um, do you have a you know a favorite place to visit? Uh, do you consider yourself a certain type of traveler? Um, you know, if you had your perfect vacation, what would it be? Yeah, yeah. Well, look, uh, the the thing I really enjoy about Traveling general, generally, and it, it's almost uh, ubiquitous, is that um, meeting new people and cultures. And so um, I'm not really a sightseer, and my wife and I describe ourselves as uh, nesters. So we'll tend to, uh, you know, settle in at a destination for at least a, for at least a week, sometimes longer and uh, find out what locals do and what the cool things are locally that um, you know, mightn't be on a tourist primary reason for visiting an area. And of course, um, food, wine, uh, music, dancing, uh, and more of a, um, uh, a sensual experience of 
whatever that destination or region happens to be. And that's, uh, you know, that's something that we really enjoy doing, uh, whether that be, um, and, you know, one of my favorite places uh, is, um, you know, Honolulu, uh, because I don't have to think about access. And the people are cool without being that different to, um, uh, to the society I've come from. Um, and then the other place is um, uh, a little place called Girona in um, uh, the Catalonia region of Spain, where we had 10 days there, partly to do with the um, International Paralympic Committee Scientific Congress. And they just done so much to um, be inclusive of people, whether that be in a 16th century chapel or, um, you know, our sort of pinnacle experience from that trip was doing hot air ballooning, but I was able to reverse my power wheelchair uh, into the basket, transfer into it like a Recaro-style racing seat. And that, that seat was on a hydraulic pedestal that then uh, took me up so I could quite easily see over the top of the basket and be uh, closer to my normal six foot three um, height. Uh, and they'd really thought about the experience from, uh, you know, right from arrival um, through to, you know, the uh, social experience that occurred with it with breakfast after you came back and all those sorts of things. You know, are there any destinations that are like you mentioned Honolulu? You don't really have to think about it. And actually, I, I love Honolulu. I lived there for two years um, when I was a professor at University of Hawaii. Are there destinations that that do accessibility better than others? And like, what are some examples? Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, you know, the Spain's uh, benefited from being also the home of um, the UN World Tourism Organization. And they've done some pretty serious work over the last four or five years. So the UNWTO actually includes accessible tourism into its, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, mission statement. And that's a really important signifier. And then they backed it up with a a series of six um, research and operational reports uh, that have been uh, done that outline uh, aspects of best practice that uh, have been terrific. That's um, that's also fed into a very healthy, uh, what we call third sector or non-profit organisation called ONCE, or spelt uh, O-N-C-E, which was a disability-based um, organisation I think it was originally funded out of uh, lottery money in Spain. And they work in all sorts of areas, including tourism, where they have um, a small chain of hotels. And again, um, almost everything I could think of information-wise for me to make an informed decision to travel uh, thousands of kilometres from Australia. Um, and have accommodation that's a good anchor 
by meeting my needs uh, to, you know, stay overnight. And then all sorts of really cool, accessible experiences uh, because nobody travels a few thousand k's to stay in a hotel room. So I think Spain are really doing it well, um, but also uh, closer closer to the Asia-Pacific. Uh, Singapore's done some great stuff um, around this space and is a very accessible um, city. It's also a bloody little city, so you don't have to uh, travel too far to get the whole Singapore experience. Um, and then there's those places that... So do you think, as a, as a person that's based in Sydney... Uh, I'm always interested to understand, because I'm from the U.S., um, lived in a few other countries for short periods of time, but not any long period of time. Do you think being based in, in Sydney changes your, I guess, destinations that are most interesting to you? Like, are you more Asia-Pacific focused because that's, you know, you're in Australia? Or do you find that the rest of the world is is just as easy to get to for you as well now that everything's pretty globalized. Well, there's a um, there's a phrase uh, that was associated uh, with being a real impediment, and that was the tyranny of distance. And certainly, uh, being in Australia, uh, you know, I think if you mention in France, uh, why you know why don't you travel to Australia more often? well, they're not going to do anything that's more than five hours away. So there is that certain, um, uh, you know, uh, Australians just know they've got to travel a long way and we don't worry about it because that's just the way it is. But people coming the other way do really have to get over uh, that impediment of thinking, well, it is a long way to go. True it is, but what are the experiences you're looking for? And look, I'll give Sydney a plug from a, a disability and access perspective. Uh, most of our major uh, tourism precincts uh, are pretty bloody good. And they've got good quality accommodation, great streetscapes, some awesome experiences. And that's even though we've been a bit neglected by um, the major national tourism uh, offices, et cetera, and there's just been really good community response and the information is there to uh, plan a trip. So you've been doing research since the 90s, maybe even before that, but I'm looking at your publications right now, and that's when you really started publishing research. And when we were talking earlier, you mentioned, you know, I'm not really a tourism researcher, even though you've done a lot of research in the tourism area. So I'm curious how you came into being a researcher who does research on tourism but isn't solely focused on tourism, and particularly in the area of travel with disabilities. So can you tell me the story of how you got into this area and, and where it's taken you? So I actually grew up in a tourist town on the north coast of New South Wales called uh, Coffs Harbour. Coffs Harbour's one of those cities that's got a big thing. And Coffs Harbour's a banana district, so we had the big banana, which was a uh, you know, major tourist attraction for a long time. And um, that, that um, you know, when, whenever you've got a big banana, it's going to have a, some sort of psychological effect on you, I think, as you grow up. Um, so um, uh, 
there was that component to it. And then I moved, uh, uh, the family moved to quite a few areas because of my father's job. And then we ended up in uh, Sydney. And I suppose being a cops boy who spent most of his time surfing, fishing, uh, oystering, doing all sorts of uh, stuff, um, that, yeah, that has a big impact on your life. And uh, so I ended up doing a, an arts degree in um, sport and tourism. Uh, I then went on and did a master's in environmental planning. And my master's dissertation uh, went back to my hometown uh, because it was a centre for what uh, had become uh, designated zoning for what were called total destination resorts. So these were a resort with a particular environmental focus, whether that be a beach uh, or a man-made focus like a golf course or a marina. Um, and uh, that came at a time during the 1980s where there was um, a massive tourism boom uh, in Australia, a great deal of it, Japanese money. And uh, so these things were going up left, right and centre, uh, north of the border into Queensland, which is a little, Queensland's a little bit more like your southern US states, um, you know, a little, uh, a little different to the rest of us, um, uh, sometimes not in the nicest way. Uh, but there, all this development was going on and uh, south, you know, in New South Wales, they were using zoning as a way of trying to regulate the number of resorts going on. So I, I did my master's in that area, um, and it's obviously a technical area around um, land use planning, carrying capacity, all that sort of stuff. And then I, uh, the other major influence was um, I didn't actually ever want to do any research in the disability space because I didn't want to be defined as a, dis, um, a disability studies or a disability researcher. But I went to an event held at the, the Sydney Exhibition and Convention Centre and it was the um, 1995 World Assembly of Disabled Peoples International. So a big... Uh, a big international uh, disability group um, that had uh, affiliates in many countries around the world, and I was um, I was interested in in the delegates' experiences of Sydney as an accessible city, and uh, went along in my naivety and found an incredibly poorly organized event from a disability perspective, some terrible uh, experiences had by people with, dis uh, with different types of disability. And I'll give you two examples. Um, people with mobility disability that required some sort of an accessible room with maybe a roll-in shower, they're sometimes called wet rooms in the UK, uh, but basically, you know, um, uh, uh, not a not a um, shower over a bathtub or anything like that, but you know, be able to roll in with a commode and use the space. We didn't have a basic inventory of which hotels had uh, accessible rooms, 
And so people were being uh, bussed around, this, uh, bussed around uh, not the immediate city, but quite far-reaching areas of Sydney where people knew that there were accessible rooms. And I, I was just um, flabbergasted by that. And then the other, um, the other group of people that uh, uh, had a bit of a raw deal, for a whole bunch of uh, blind people that came out, uh, and you know the difference between being blind and vision impaired can be quite significant. So I am speaking about people who were regarded as blind, used canes or um, assistant animals. They trained the volunteers to do a great job during the day while the Congress was on, but didn't think about um, having those volunteers available after Congress hours when all the social stuff was on. So um, some blind people's experience of Sydney as an accessible city was fantastic during Congress hours and then hanging around their hotel after that. So um, that really kicked me off on saying, well, what do we know about tourism uh, research and disability? And, you know, diligent young researcher did a lit review and found, um, and I'll use some colloquialisms, uh, sweet uh, FA, and I'll leave your readers to, uh, your listeners to fill in the FA, uh, but there wasn't, uh, there, there literally wasn't very much research at all and even today, where there's been uh, about 140 referee journal articles that are substantially empirical, um, there's focuses on some areas, but massive gaps uh, across uh, you know, the, the broad church of what's regarded as tourism research. Are things getting better? Are things still not great? Are there certain types of disabilities where the tourism industry is getting it right, like maybe people with mobility disabilities, and then others are maybe being ignored. So sort of a what's what's the state of research in the industry right now in terms of travel with disabilities? We, we've come a, you know, a hell of a long way in that time in many respects. Uh, but the, the area, I'd say, has become harder um, Harder and harder, and certainly um, uh, the U.S. Had led the way with the something like the Air Carriers Act uh, has been with um, the airlines and flying with a disability, whether that be um, people with vision, uh, those with autism with behavioural issues, and certainly um, with the treatment of people with mobility disabilities that have got. Um, uh, that have got, you know, mobility devices. So, um, you know, it, it's uh, it, it's patchy, and um, of course, if you can't take an airplane with confidence, then uh, you know your uh, geographic reach is going to be reasonably um, constrained. Although I will say, uh, I haven't done one yet, but I will say I've. Uh, had a number of friends do long cruises because uh, that would allow them to avoid multiple plane trips. And uh, the cruise ship industry has certainly um, done some 
uh, terrific things for not just people that have a um, you know what, what's traditionally regarded as a mobility disability, but also for uh, older people that have got access needs but don't like to call themselves disabled. Uh, with one of those groups being you know what um, our stats used to call the old old or the frail aged, um, and I've just had a great auntie of mine at 102, uh, just about to embark on her. 37th cruise, uh, and they do a you know absolutely uh, magnificent job because some of the most um, af uh, you know some of the most high yielding of the products uh, the cruise companies have got are squarely within that older demographic. There's a lot of research that has been done recently. It seems like on. Like, hey, this is not only a thing that the industry needs to focus on because it's altruistically a good thing to make sure we have access for people of all types. But it also like there's a big market out there for people with disabilities traveling. And, you know, there's pent up demand saying, you know, we we would like to travel and we need certain things to be able to do so. And whoever provides that is going to reap, I guess, the financial benefits. Does that sound accurate? Yes, it does. And in fact, I'd, I'd opened up a little infographic um, that we put together uh, last year with respect to uh, the work that's been done globally. And uh, uh, also, and I'll talk a little bit more about sort of my 25-year uh, project on having good, um, having good, reliable, and nationally validated uh, tourism statistics that include disability modules. And it's, uh, it's quite surprising how limited our understanding of um, people with disability as travellers are within the national data collection of countries from around the world. So um, in the US, for example, the uh, government has done absolutely no work in this area. And so an organization called Open Doors have done three surveys since 2005 that provide some of this um, basic market data um, around not just the size of the market, but specifically uh, what are the rates of travel for people with disability? Um, what's the dynamics of the group that people with disability travel with? So one of the most powerful things from a market perspective uh, that all of us from around the different countries that do some of this research talk about is you're not just discriminating against the individual with a disability. Um, and going back to what you said before, yeah, there's the market argument, there's altruism. And then there's human rights and the legislation that goes with it. Um, and one of your great actors, Clint Eastwood, thought he could do, own mo um, motels and hotels and not provide access. And he ran foul of the Americans with Disability Act uh, going back about a decade ago now and had to bring his um, properties up to scratch. So, uh, yeah, we're, 
the for overnight stays, it's about um, uh, two point five people uh, that accompany a person with a disability is you know family, friends, etc. So if you're not catering for the individual's access needs, you're missing out on that market. Or in an academic sense, um, we, uh, you know, I, I've, I speak about either my department or some of our association conferences, and I've been to some very good uh, US ones, the Travel and Tourism Research Association Conference. And if we're looking for venues, I uh, talk to prospective venues, and if they can't give me access information uh, immediately, I tell them the uh, the value of the conference they've just missed, and also the fact that there's probably going to be a really big red wine bill because academics tend to drink a lot as well. Um, so that the the work, uh, you know. I've, I'd say what I'll you know just give you a little snapshot on in an Australian. Oh, I'm sorry, I mentioned Open Doors. Uh, the other groups that have done some, uh, the other countries that have done some really interesting work are the UK, with both Visit England and Visit Scotland having undertaken um, significant market research uh, that compares people with disability and the non-disabled. A recent study by uh, a, um, a group of about five organisations that won a major European Union grant did a fantastic study on what they call the uh, EU 27. So 27 of the countries in the European Union and looking at all sorts of travel patterns. Uh, and as I said, the um, uh, U.S. Open Doors Association uh, have done some pretty good work. But when you look at that, that's uh, 27 European, uh, two countries in the U.K., the U.S. and uh, Australia, and nobody else, which is uh, a pretty big gap across some of the biggest tourist destinations in the world, uh, including the whole of Asia, the Pacific. Oh, uh, sorry, I, I should say there has also been um, some sporadic work done by um, South America uh, in uh, Brazil and Argentina, uh, but not at the national level. And similarly, Spain. Have had some smaller studies done, but again, not at the national level where you can do comparisons between people with disabilities um, and the non-disabled. So, would you like me just to outline a few of the things we um, were uh, fairly certain of through the Australian research, which has been uh, going um, sporadically for the last 25 years? Yeah, that would be fantastic if you summarise. A few of the things that you found, and then maybe talk a little bit about where you see this going in the future. Yeah, well, one of the um, one of the things that the research found straight uh, straight away was the main motivations for travel 
are essentially the same between uh, people with disability and the non-disabled. Um, so there had been a belief by the industry that people due to the nature of their disability just didn't have an interest in travel um, and were somehow different to the rest of the people in the community. So most of this research is really dispelled that myth by uh, industry that, well, these people don't really travel, where, you know, it's that little bit of a chicken and the egg. Um, what we found was that less than 1% of people identified their impairment as a reason for not traveling, but most people identified a series of compounding barriers that they experience, making uh, travel more difficult to undertake. And one of the key, uh, one of those uh, is not surprisingly, uh, specific and detailed travel information. So everybody has trouble uh, planning trips and getting the information. And uh, what, what, what does the average person do to assist in that process, Evan? To book a trip? Yeah. Oh, goodness. Uh, internet searches? Internet searches? Others? Yeah, maybe uh, talk to family and friends, maybe make phone Good. calls. Yeah, yeah. Anything, uh, any industrial responses? Oh, certainly. Um, marketing via social media, marketing via magazines, marketing via advertisements on TV and radio. That's okay. I'm torturing you now. So uh, the, uh, the other thing people do um, is you know, garnish the assistance of a travel agent. Well, well, there's been multiple studies that have shown that uh, two or three studies that have shown uh, that quite often people with disability are told by travel agents that actually they'd, they'd be better off doing uh, the trip organization themselves because they found it too hard to get the information uh, required for them to be able to book the trip for them, which is quite, which is quite extraordinary. And we have seen um, another response where we've had specialist companies uh, develop that have done it. So I put all my travel now uh, through an organization called uh, Travability in Australia, and they're a small outfit that um, I actually got to know uh, the proprietor through the tourism research before uh, taking my jobs to him. But it just allows me, because I know the quality of their work, to be like anyone else and not have to follow up on um, uh, you know, uh, sometimes can be uh, quite a, um, a, a massive complex process. So I went to Italy for the first time in 2012 and I was over there short of travel, but I also had some work. So I did some work for the Australian Institute, uh, the Italian Institute of Architects and a major um, neurological society and I didn't realize how big a deal it was but I had a um, uh, I had a uh, formal uh, media res uh, reception and dinner 
at a magnificent 17th century hotel, just extraordinary. And uh, there were, I think, uh, six print journalists and two TV crews. And one of them asked the question, how did I go about organizing the trip? And I told them 762 emails and uh, uncalculable number of follow-up phone calls for me to get the information because I just couldn't find it in Italy. And in the end, I, as I was getting very close to the trip occurring, I came across a very, uh, I came across a, com a company that organised a whole series of um, in-destination experiences um, and ended up having some terrific service by those guys. Uh, but yeah, I mean, um, that number of emails was just extraordinary where uh, when I added it all up and it was a multiple leg trip. So uh, basically Milan, um, Siena and Rome uh, and doing a series of other things over six weeks. So, you know, that gives you some idea and not to be able to rely on um, a commercial provider means that you're doing it yourself and you're having to become a, uh, I call them a travel detective because finding that information is so hard to do. So motivations were the same. Information was critical. Um, and uh, what, uh, what has become, uh, what's become known over that period of time is that for day trips, people with disability and the non-disabled travel at about the same rate, um, which is 15% uh, um, of people over the last seven days, and they do the data collection, as you'd know on these things, um, so that recall is uh, not as problematic as it can be if you ask somebody how many trips they've done over the last 12 months. So um, that was about level. For overnight trips, there was a 21% gap between people with disability traveling less than those without a disability. And for overseas travel, that gap became 51%. So what what uh, a lot of our work has been doing has been probing at what makes for this travel gap and a latent potential of the market. Um, and certainly information's a key one. The other one is infrastructure. Um, some, uh, some countries um, are or aren't set up to be good accessible destinations. And of course, a good accessible destination generally is a pretty good destination to to live in. And some of our conversations earlier uh, pick up on that with um, uh, those cities from around the world. So Honolulu, for example, um, all the private charters were all accessible. So I was able to call up and grab a accessible coach, take me down to the accessible boat to go out on the whale watching experience. Terrific stuff. Um, the Hawaiian buses 
uh, provided uh, uh, ramps and wheelchair lockdown spots. Uh, and of course, they're all used by the locals, etc. Um, so uh, we, we've got these issues of what makes for this travel gap and how can we strategically try and address what those issues are. And of course, um, looking at the way organisations not just provide information, but document information, um, market, promote and distribute it through mainstream and specialist um, uh, and specialist uh, uh, distribution channels. And uh, what we find is uh, and, uh, people listening to this podcast can go and try it. Pick any hotel uh, and, and try it on Australia. Pick any hotel in an Australian destination and note down what information they provide about disability, accessible rooms, etc., and then go and do it on the US. And you end up with very different results. So uh, again, the ADA has been far more effective in um, uh, getting hotels as a group to agree on what information they're going to provide uh, and the way that they have to present that on or uh, present that on their websites. So uh, then, then our work has looked at what these travel rates are, and we've um, then broken broken the travel rates down across both disability type, with the majors being uh, mobility, using a wheelchair, mobility other, people who are blind or vision impaired, deaf or hearing impaired, those with intellectual disability, um, those who have some form of uh, chemical or food sensitivity, et cetera, et cetera. And also the level of support needs of those people. So um, those support needs might be somebody that's independent and doesn't really need any support. And a lot of um, manual wheelchair users uh, are in that group of people, uh, but they need, you know, obviously access infrastructure. Where somebody like myself uh, needs assistance on a daily basis to get up, get back into bed at night, and I would be regarded as having a high level of assistance through to people that might require 24-hour care. And there are people that are on that are ventilator dependent, uh, but still able to travel uh, with the uh, you know, different tech that's required there. So um, in, in breaking it down into those groups, we've been looking at the different impacts that embodiment have. So we've seen some terrific work being done around people with uh, vision impairment or who are uh, blind. And of course, a great deal of tourism has been uh, focused on the visual, uh, the tourist gaze, as Uri calls it. And for the group with people who are blind or vision impaired, well, 
they're not looking at anything, but they're still traveling. So uh, getting to understand that um, tourism should encapsulate all five senses and not just focus on one of those senses. And as I alluded to earlier, um, we, we all incorporate that into our travel experiences with uh, food and wine and music and the ambience of the destination without necessarily consciously thinking about it. And so we've been trying to get organizations to uh, consciously think about constructing tourism packages and experiences that are inclusive from a sensory perspective. Uh, and uh, that, that's, been, that's been really interesting work and we're seeing a series of um, entrepreneurial people uh, in the tourism space that are now providing some uh, absolutely fantastic uh, packages and experiences and some really innovative ways of addressing it. And I'll, I'll mention one, then I'll uh, keep quiet. A company developed out of the UK called Travelize. And so Travelize provides a service for people who are blind or vision impaired and require um, uh, required to be guided at, uh, on their tourism experience. And so what Travelize do is they have um, limited sized group tours and there's two types of people on the group tours. There's people who are blind and vision impaired, and then there's people who are, are non-disabled but want to assist people uh, be guided on tours. So the way the company's constructed it, there's a slight premium for people who are blind or vision impaired uh, in paying for uh, their involvement in these tours and there's a slight discount for people who are non-disabled that provide the guiding and people are matched up and uh, there's a whole series of destinations where they do these. One of my colleagues, uh, Jenny Small, uh, 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 was uh, went along to one of the tours and did some research from the perspective of the non-disabled people uh, involvement in this tour process. And it's a really innovative way of, um, uh, of, of meeting a need uh, and um, for two groups of people and creating a, a wonderful um, uh, business model for the blind entrepreneur that started the company. It seems like such a unique solution. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so he runs, uh, the reason we got to know him uh, first off was that he brought a tour group out to Australia and we just happened to have got some money to assess different experiences around Sydney. And so a number of his people did what's called bridge climb on the Sydney Harbour Bridge. And it was fascinating because um, what the blind or vision impaired people did after they'd done the bridge climbers just like everybody else. They'd taken some photos, they whacked them up on Facebook and they showed their friends what they'd been doing. Uh, and of course on the bridge, on the bridge climb, 
uh, the, uh, the the sensation of climbing and the height and the wind on the day, uh, you know, it's just a magnificent experience. Yeah, it really involves the other senses. It, it does, it does. And uh, uh, there's, there's a promotional video that um, followed the experience of a deaf blind person doing that climb and her, um, you know, overwhelming excitement of not just doing it but completing it and communicating by social media to all her uh, followers because she was a disability ambassador in Australia for our International Day of Disabled People. Um, yeah, communicating to all, all her followers. What a brilliant experience that she just had. It seems like the thing that strikes me in your discussion of all of the summary of research that you've done over the past 20 or so years on travel with disabilities is it just keeps coming back to effort. It's such an, an enormous amount of effort when you said, you know, 700 some emails searching for information, not being sure that a place is going to be accessible for you. Just there's so much more effort involved for travelers with disabilities. And it seems like your research is really pushing it towards reducing that as a barrier to travel for people with disabilities. So I think that's fantastic. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, you're right about the effort. So what we found uh, with some of the earlier studies was that once a person um, had found a place that did a good job satisfying their needs, then they went there every year. Now, I could think of nothing worse uh, because I think for the first 19 summers of my life, I spent it on the, uh, on, on the uh, river at a place called Yurunga with the family holiday being uh, the same wonderful things, you know, all the stuff that I mentioned before with surfing and fishing and oystering and uh, all that. But as a, you know, as an adult, um, the newness uh, of destination and the newness of experience, uh, I think, is quite exciting. Um, you know, that you don't know what you might or might not experience. And sure, there's a risk with that. And, uh, you know, one of the worst experiences that I've ever had was Siena, where uh, uh, we were just, uh, you know, basically lied to by the accommodation provider and they weren't able to provide the sort of room that suited us. Uh, and there were no there were no other vacancies in the city, let alone one that was accessible. But my, at least my experience as a traveller, I always overlapped bookings. And so I cut the Siena part of the trip short and increased the Rome leg of the trip uh, where the accommodation was magnificent. We continued to have a good time. And we look back on a few of the disasters with Siena and have a bit of a laugh at them uh, now. Um, but at the time... They were no laughing matter because, you know, the while I was able to get into the room, I couldn't use the bathroom. I'd been crook. I really needed to use the bathroom. It was just 
terrible. Um, but, you know, you get on, you try and come up with solutions uh, and you move forward. And, and people have a sense of achievement about overcoming and being resilient to some of those issues. Definitely, definitely. And I think a lot of the things that you just mentioned are not things that travelers without disabilities don't normally think of. So you provided a lot of great resources for travelers with disabilities, you know, companies to use, information. What about our listeners who are travelers without disabilities? Are there things that they can do to be more cognizant of these sorts of things to make the experience better for their fellow travelers who do have disabilities? Um, apart from, uh, you know, not taking an inordinate amount of time in any accessible toilets that they're in, um, I, I, I suppose I'd focus this, this question uh, back to um, all people about disability. Um, disability is one of those clubs that anyone can join at any time. And also, as people age, there's a very high correlation between um, aging and disability. So making things right um, in any sense for people that are traveling with a disability may be helping preparations for what you may or may not experience later in life. But the other thing is that uh, within your extended family group, it, I would find it really surprising that you don't have people with different types of disability already, whether that's, you know, one of the uncles that's had to have a you know, knee replacement after years of football and then isn't able to uh, you know, cover the same distance, somebody that's got a hearing aid, uh, those people that uh, you know, have an obvious mobility aid as they get older, et cetera. So even when you're planning um, family get-togethers, et cetera, are you doing so that makes it possible and easy for those people in your extended family group to be included and experience the same things that everybody else uh, is experiencing? Um, and that could be for something as simple as you know, a birthday party or getting together for the Thanksgiving dinner uh, because, uh, you know, th this, this area of, um, uh, you know, this area of uh, travel planning is one that uh, all of us have to go through, but some of us have to do some extra yards to get in a quality of experience in this area. Now, Evan, I'm not sure whether that's really helped uh, with the question you asked. No, absolutely. I think I think it is because I really think there's there's just an awareness issue to that this is something that people need to think about and don't necessarily if they're not dealing with it in their everyday lives. And it could be a family member, it could be a friend, it could be a colleague that, you know, there's other there's there's consideration that that non-disabled travelers can can have and don't necessarily and so just being aware and and addressing that i think is really important well you brought up another one that's sort of uh one of those other areas of my current research and it's about uh you know uh, employment of people with disability 
and uh, that space and also self-employment and uh, entrepreneurship with people with disability. And those same issues are there. So um, I, I suppose a, a really general one um, around tourism is uh, whether it was a person with or without a disability, one of the major facilitators of a great travel experience is actually the attitude of those people in the tourism industry in particular that they come in contact with. So um, people having a can-do attitude rather than, oh, God, that's going to be so difficult, it'll be impossible. Computer says no. Um, and and uh, uh, so that, that whole can-do approach to things and being open to um, engagement with experience. So one of the things I really enjoyed that um, uh, really enjoyed about my experiences in the States was I was on the same coach um, as everybody else rather than being in a special vehicle that took me there by myself. And so we got to meet people. And in meeting people, you're breaking down barriers in any case. And then after that experience is over, you'll go out for dinner with a few people, you do another few things on the trip. And, uh, you know, that may or may not be the first time that people have had any contact with disability at all. Although the thing I'm finding in Australia is since schooling's been mainstream, kids are very matter-of-fact about it because they've always had uh, children with either mobility disability or some form of intellectual disability in their classes. And so it's, you know, no big deal. And, um, you know, what are you going on about? Isn't that just normal? Uh, and that's been a really big change in the Australian sense is the, the attitudes um, generationally we're seeing a big impact on. We just had um, Invictus Games in Australia, uh, which uh, are games for injured veterans. And uh, uh, again, uh, the, the penetration that's had, uh, not just around uh, uh, people that have had amputations, uh, mobility users, etc., but around post-traumatic stress and mental health has just been extraordinary. It was um, a really positive outcome of the games experience on those who were uh, watching, and we had tremendous ticket sales, or on the nightly coverage um, on our um, uh, national broadcaster. Well, it sounds like there's a, a lot of positive changes that are happening, and I really look forward to reading more of your research in the future to see how they uh, affect the tourism industry. So I just want to say thank you uh, again, Simon, for taking the time to be on the podcast. This has been very informative. Look, thank you very much. And if uh, anyone for any reason wants to uh, drop me a line, I'm sure that uh, Evan will uh, add my uh, email address to the uh, podcast. Yep. And uh, I'm always happy to um, accept, uh, uh, you know, conversations with uh, people directly with that. Uh, and Evan, thanks for an, uh, thanks for the opportunity today. 